your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was just beginning. The word of the Lord. Mark and I used to be young. <laughs> That's how I'm feeling right now. Okay. I'm going to need some help a little later on. You're going to be my helper. You've just been appointed. <laughs> Don't be nervous. Okay. All right. Um, Matthew begins his gospel. If we go to the New Testament, he begins his gospel with a Christmas story, and he begins the Christmas story with not a resume of who Jesus is, but a family tree of who Jesus is. And in that family tree is a very unexpected name, the name of Ruth. And it's unexpected because uh, if we we were to do one of those DNA tests that gets your ancestry figured out, you would find that she had she was Moabite, which you heard in the text, and the, and the Moabites had very very bad blood between themselves and the Israelites, and so to have this uh, Moabite woman in the family tree of Jesus Christ is highly unusual, and so we're going to look at the how and the why of that over the next uh, four weeks, and uh, this series called Tenacious Love. You're going to see tenacious love in Ruth, but you're also going to see it in others as well. And one of those others is a guy named Boaz. So it's not, it's, there's so much theology in this book, but we're all, there's also some real practical stuff, and I want you to look for the things that you would want for yourself in the character, if you're a woman, Ruth, and if you're a man, Boaz. Amazing stuff in these two people for, that you would want for you or for your children. Here's our uh, outline for today. We're going to walk through the story. There's, there's some things here that we need to explain. And then we're going to ask two questions. Was Naomi empty? And why did Ruth go with her? So uh, we'll begin with uh, this first section. The, the, the setup basically is that um, they're in the time of Judges. So roughly 1,100 years before Christ. And the time of Judges, what's that key phrase in the book of Judges, which is the book right before Ruth in, in your Bible? It's that everyone did what was right, remember that one? In their own eyes. 
And then what we're going to discover here are some characters, uh, Ruth and Boaz, and in part Naomi, these three people that this story spins around, who are not just out for themselves. Everyone else is out for themselves. Sound a little bit like today, you know? I mean, you got this, the, the high character people and the people who are out for themselves. All right, and it begins, in, the, 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 the plot kind of um, thickens quickly. They, they begin in Bethlehem. Bethlehem in the Hebrew means house of bread, but there is no bread in Bethlehem. So you have a little irony there, wordplay. And this family, and Naomi is the mom, they go to Moab, which is about two days' journey by foot to the east of Bethlehem. Not that far. And they set out. So you have a, a husband and you have two sons. So mom, dad, and two sons. Like a family I know right over here. Mom, dad, two sons, yeah. And they are going there and then 10 years go by. And in that 10 years, what happens is the husband dies, Naomi's husband dies, and the two sons marry Moabite women, one of whom is Ruth and the other one is Oprah, right? <laughs> He stole my joke. I, I, I talk with him later, uh, Orpah. And uh, then, but their husbands die. So now you have three widows: a mother-in-law and two daughter-in-laws. One Israelite mother-in-law with two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And then, after ten years, then Ruth hears that there's food again in Bethlehem. The house of bread has got bread in it. And they begin to go back to Bethlehem. So they're on the road. And then, in verse 8, Naomi has second thoughts. And you've got, you got to pick this up. It's in the text. Second thoughts, she thinks about it more deeply, and she realizes that this is not a good thing for Ruth and Orpah to be going back with her. And she tries to convince them that they should turn around. And the logic that she uses is that uh, if you come back with me, well, the chances of these immigrant, really racially hated immigrants, does that sound familiar? These two women would go back with her to Bethlehem and have to live a pretty rough life with no hope of getting married. Who's going to want to marry these outsiders? And uh, so Naomi uh, thinks about what's best, not for her. She would love to have them come with her. I mean, to have something. She has virtually nothing, and we'll explain that in a second. But uh, she realizes that it's best for these women to go back, and they might find a, a husband back in their homeland. That's the logic. Now, I need to explain something here to you called leverate marriage law. And, and uh, it, it's in Deuteronomy, it's in the Old Testament, it's part of the law that God gave, in that if a, wood, if a, a woman dies, or I'm sorry, a, a, a widow is left, her husband dies, that if there was a younger brother there who's not married, that younger brother would have to marry the widow. And this is God's way of providing for an otherwise just totally helpless person. If you were a widow uh, and, and you didn't have anybody to, I mean, you were, it was a bad situation. So the Leverite law was, um, is behind Naomi's comments. So Naomi says, look, uh, I had two sons. Uh, they're both gone. And the chances of me, look at me, 
the chances of me having another son, or at this point in my life, of me ever getting married again at this point in my life, are pretty slim. And if I did go back and somehow miraculously got married and had children, they would be 20 years or so before they could marry you. Would you be willing to wait that long? She's exaggerating to make a point. And, of course, you know, they do the math and it's not going to work. And so uh, we see this conversation going on. Every culture, and, and think about our own culture, every culture in the world has a way of saying, you are somebody and you are nobody. And you think about that for today. You are somebody today if you have the right body type. You are somebody today if you have looks, if you have brains, if you get good grades, if you get a good job, if you go to the right college, you are somebody. And if you don't, you are a nobody. And social media just amplifies that. Who are the somebodies and the nobodies? In this day, Naomi is a big nobody, and she knows it. You gotta, you, there's no hope for her. She has no land. She has no income. She has no husband. And in that culture, to not have a family line that lives beyond you meant you have no eternal life. Eternal life was defined not in terms of heaven, but in terms of this earth and the family line that you leave behind, which is why the Israelites continued. They put so much emphasis on the families continuing. She had nothing. You've got to feel her hopelessness. And why she gets into a little bit of self-pity as the story plays out. Okay, so the two responses to uh, her, to Ruth and to Orpah, to go back. And Orpah is, you know, and she's not condemned for her decision. Don't, don't be hard on her. Um, she does the sensible thing. She follows Naomi's advice. I'm going, okay, I kind of see your point. I'm going to go back. But Ruth, and here's uh, a word we're going to focus on a little bit, Ruth clings to Naomi. And I want to get you a couple of words here that are really important in the book. And the first one, this is in, um, I might as well get them both up there. There's the cling word, but hesed is found in verse 8. And it's translated kindness or loving kindness or uh, covenant faithfulness, it has all kinds, steadfast love. But this is, a, this is probably the most important word in the book uh, that we're going to come to. And um, we'll see it as we go through the four chapters. Unfailing love to the helpless. Steadfast love. Faithfulness. Okay, you're going to see that in Ruth towards Naomi. And then here's the debak. Cling, cleave to, stay with. And you, you want to, we're going to say this to you, this is such a key text in the Bible. Uh, I want you to say this, it's a wedding text, by the way, it may have been read at your wedding, but let's read it together. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Now, the part of it that, that amplifies it, and by the way, this is not usually read at weddings. I don't think I've ever seen it, is, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. <laughs> and, and, but what that does, and that's a zinger, and you notice something here, Ruth, who is not 
uh, an Israelite is using the personal name, the personal name of God, the one name that he gave to his people like in a special way, Yahweh, or translated here, Lord. And so you see a hint of her heart. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. If even death separates you and me, I'm not leaving you for nothing, so don't even try. She has got a resolute heart, and she is going to cling to Naomi. So, um, okay, Nina, you ready? I thought of what's the one thing I could come up with that would represent clinging. So here, pull. It's fun. No, pull. Yeah, come on. Right here. Right here. Yeah. Here, get it on the microphone. There you go. What's that called? Velcro. That is Velcro. You did a good job. You can relax now. All right, so... Naomi uh, has kind of a Velcro, I'm going to stick to you no matter what attitude toward, or Ruth has that towards Naomi. And what a, what a beautiful thing. And you're going to see this quality as it comes out in the person of Jesus um, in his life. And it's, it gives you a little hint as to why she might be mentioned in the um, ancestral tree of Jesus. All right, then uh, this is the last scene in verses 19 and 22. And they, they go back to Bethlehem, just Ruth and Naomi, and they get to Bethlehem, and there's a big buzz in the town. And, and Naomi's back, and so the people ask, is this Naomi? Can this be Naomi? And you know, I don't know if you've ever gone to a class reunion, but some people look older than others. So I'm telling you, I'm called Young Mark at the class reunion. Uh, yeah. But... Naomi's head, you know, the, the idea is, if you're, I don't know if you've ever had anybody just tell you, you know, you don't look so good today. <laughs> you know, it doesn't feel very good either to hear that, but uh, it, those 10 years have been really, really hard on Naomi. And it, it, she wears, she's wearing that. And so they, they say that to her, and she kind of absorbs that. You can tell her self-image is being shaped by what other people are saying as well. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi in the Hebrew means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Rather, call me Mara, which means bitter. And, and if I were an advisor to Naomi and, and thinking, you know, you know, if you really ever want to get married, you might want to keep Naomi not, and not Mara, but you know, that's not going to help your chances. But she's feeling sorry for herself, and uh, she's got a tough deal. She really does. Then she says, I went away from here 10 years ago. I went away full, but today I'm coming back empty. So uh, it's... Now, we want to ask these two questions, and then we're going to have communion together. And um, so the first question is, was Naomi really empty? Was she empty? And we have to think about um, where, she, where she is and be realistic. And she feels, we've already said it, she has no prospects for a family to go forward. It's kind of a dead-end life. She doesn't have any income. She's got to be dependent on others, maybe begging. Uh, she has, I mean, just not much. And the, emotionally, she is really in a dark place. And the problem This is going to translate a little bit to our lives. The problem with being in a dark place is you can't see very well. 
And she can't see that standing right next to her is an asset that is bigger than anything she can imagine. This woman named Ruth who's clinging to her. She's not empty. We have to let the story play out, but she's very, very full. Or she will be by the time the story ends. We'll come back to that in week four. But she makes a statement that talks about how full she really is. So I want to I do a little uh, discipleship thing with you, and I want to ask you to do something. You don't have to do it right now. But if you have, and most of us who are adults will, will be able to say this, that we have been in dark places. Can I just get a show? I mean, I know not everybody likes to raise their hand, but anybody here been in a dark place besides me? I mean, that's just part of life. And if you haven't ever been in a dark place, um, either you're lying or, or you know, it's, it's, it's part of the deal. So I want you to think about it. Was there a time when you were in a dark place where, you, yeah, it was dark, you felt emotionally dark, but as you look back on it now, you can see that there was way more there in terms of possibilities than you could have imagined at that time. Anything come to mind for you? I got stuff, but I'm not going to have time to share it all. But as you look back on it, you get perspective on it, you see that there was a provision there for you, and then life had to unfold. Now, what I want you to do, here's the part that, if if you can do it, can you find somebody who's younger than you, I'm thinking preferably, because we have, but find somebody who's younger and tell them about it. This is really important. This is part of your story. Tell them about it, because kids get into dark places, and they can't, you know, I mean, it's just things get amplified. And they wonder, am I, I going to always be a nobody? Because of what people say at school or whatever, am I always going to be a nobody? And there have been times, and I remember when I was in school, I was a nobody. And I can tell my kids that, you know, I hung in there, and now I see all the kinds of things. So just... And then also, just look at, if that doesn't work for you, just look at Naomi and look at Ruth in this story. And Naomi thought that she was just a nobody going nowhere, and yet God was active in 10,000 ways. And you're going to see the fullness of this in a few weeks, how he brought about a miracle in her life, and she'll have joy beyond measure. So there's the question of, was, was she really empty? She feels empty, but... Wait. And then secondly, why did Ruth go back to Bethlehem with her? Every immigrant, and if everyone here in this room is in your ancestry, there are immigrants. Are you with me on that? Not one, there's no exception to this. If you go back far enough, I guess if you were a Native American, maybe that would be the exception, but they immigrated at some point too. You immigrate because you're desperate, you immigrate in hopes of something being better in the place you're going to. That's been true throughout history. It's true today. The same stuff. This is not new stuff we're dealing with. And the thing that's unusual in this story is that Ruth is immigrating to make a life worse for herself, apparently. Not better, but worse. Now, why would she do that? Why would, you, why would you go somewhere where it's going to be worse for you? 
Now here's, this is the key to the, the story here, at least the first chapter. It's in that passage that we read. And Ruth saw in Naomi a self-sacrificial love that was attractive to her. She saw in her mother-in-law someone who would say, you guys go back. You're going to have a better life somewhere else than you are with me. That was self-sacrificial on Naomi's part. And Naomi had said to the daughter-in-laws, go back to your people and to your gods. And we know the god of Moab was Shemash, and Shemash loved children to be sacrificed. That was what he was famous for. You can get this out of archaeology or history. She had never met, Ruth had never met, a person like Naomi who was self-sacrificing, and the god that her people served required sacrifices of people like her, offering up their children to be sacrificed, to be taken away. Now, do you see why maybe in her heart, when she saw Naomi self-sacrifice, she said, I want to be part of that. I want that. I want what she has. And then she sees reflected, somehow she sees reflected in Naomi, not just Naomi's heart, but the character of her God, who was a self-sacrificing God. And who, um, as history plays out, we can see that his love went so far as to sacrifice his son for the sake of the world. Naomi doesn't have all that clear, but she has an intuitive nature. Ruth has an intuitive nature about her. As she looks into Naomi's heart, she can see not only the self-sacrificial love of Naomi, but of, of Yahweh. And so she clings to Naomi, and in clinging to Naomi, she clings to the Lord. This is her conversion, folks. This is her baptism. And it is a huge moment for her. She sees, too, that God is one who will cling in his self-sacrificial love for her, and that God will never, never, never let go. 